Hello and welcome into your week five edition of the fourth quarter chaos podcast coming to you from the fans first sports networks college football feed. My name is Matt Timonini and I am joined by the voice of all of Philadelphia, Corey Cohen. Corey, how are you, man? I am doing great. Had a, a busy weekend doing a lot of college soccer, but of course, I still made time for college football watching on my phone wherever I could, whenever I had a minute, making sure to be up on top of everything. Uh, it really is just the best sport. My Ohio State Buckeyes were off this weekend. Your Pitt Panthers played, technically, I, they on were off. Saturday they were night. Off. <laughs> Let, they were off, and and they didn't play. And if they did play, they, they didn't play football. They played something else. So we're just going to go right. ahead and say that Pitt was off. They were about as off. They had as many wins this week as Ohio State. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I We have heard you go off about the state of Pitt football on this podcast and other podcasts here in the Fans First Sports Network before. Do you, do you get to a point where it is so bad that you're actually, I mean, not happy about it, but like you're looking at the silver lining of like, hey, maybe this leads to changes to make things better, whether that's head coaching changes, coordinator changes, quarterback changes. Is there a point when like part of you is like, okay, this sucks, but maybe this suckage actually leads to something better? No, I I would have thought that <laughs> maybe a couple weeks ago. Like, okay, field your like I actually thought that about the West Virginia game, the backyard brawl in week three. Okay, field Jerkovic and the offense was so bad. Clearly, clearly they're going to have to make a change, and they still haven't. They lost two more games since then. They're still rolling out the same terrible quarterback, same terrible offensive coordinator. The season is gone, and there's there's no bright side. Eat Arby's. It's just all atrocious. Uh, as somebody who had my very first job working at Arby's, I can tell you that is a sad thing to do. If you, <laughs> if you are in a situation where, I'm like, look, Arby's can be good when it's fresh, but like if you're going late at night for something, mm-hmm. the, the meat's been sitting around there for a long time. The curly fries are stale. It's never good. We've already shut down the shake machine. You're not getting any Jamocha shakes. <laughs> it's just a sad thing, especially because Pitt played a primetime game. If you're going to get Arby's after that game, you're in trouble. There is um, nothing more nihilistic than getting late night Arby's after watching a <laughs> terrible college football game. Yeah. Last question on Pitt, because I don't want to rub it in. Is this all because Pat Narduzzi was too arrogant to like continue with the offensive scheme that actually worked and won them an ACC title when the offensive coordinator left. I forget who the offensive coordinator was. It was but- Mark Whipple who left to go to, to Nebraska. Um, I, I, I don't know if that was arrogance. Is he too arrogant in general and stubborn? Yes, absolutely. I don't know if that was arrogant. There were some flaws with Mark Whipple's system, I think there were some moments where I was in agreement. Yeah, they should run the ball more often just to mix it up. So it's it's not I I don't think that getting rid of Mark Whipple as OC was the death knell, but it was then hiring Frank Signetti, who was a mediocre offensive coordinator at Boston College, who doesn't really think in terms of like 21st century football and clearly doesn't have an eye for what a good quarterback is because back-to-back years they brought in a transfer quarterback who is not very good so I think he just made an atrocious hire he hasn't made a change I don't think he will at least until the end of this season and right now it's it's sinking all ships one bad decision has led to many bad decisions and now it's all going down well 
That's a wonderful, optimistic note to begin this podcast on. Um, <laughs> uh, but if you are new to the fourth quarter chaos podcast, what we do is, is we take 10 games from each college football weekend. We break them down both in terms of their entertainment value, their importance to the entire overall college football landscape. And of course, how chaotic there are. There is no sport in American pop popular culture that is more chaotic than college football. So what we do is, is we assign a chaos rating to every single game. And then at the end of the podcast, we add those totals up to see what the overall chaos rating is for that week of college football, and we will compare it to every other week in the season. Last week was a pretty underwhelming 463, which is the lowest chaos rating we've had so far this season. Interestingly enough, the most chaotic weekend was week one. Corey, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it like this could be the least chaotic. We had some games that were close, that were exciting, but on the whole, we're kind of scraping the bottle of the barrel, bottom of the barrel in terms of of chaos. So this might be even a sub 400 chaos rating when all is said and done. I think. I'm wondering. I don't know. There there were some really good games, but they weren't the games that we were thinking necessarily. So yeah, it'll. I'm not sure. This could be pretty low, but I, I don't know. It might be closer to the median. I'm I'm curious. Okay. All right. We will see. Well, we're gonna start with the biggest game of the college football weekend. And that was the game between LSU and Ole Miss. It was an absolute barn burner. It was chaotic. It was entertaining. It was high scoring. It had major implications across the college football world. And it was very, very chaotic. Full disclosure here, Corey, I picked LSU to win the SEC. I picked LSU to go to the college football playoff. In fact, I had both them and Florida State in the college football playoff, knowing that they played in week one. Mm. I was so confident that the loser of that game could still win their conference that they would be able to kind of ride the wave and make it. That obviously is not happening <laughs> because well, Matt, Ole Miss... If, if you feel bad about your playoff pick losing two games already... I picked Clemson to win the ACC and make it to the playoff. They also have two losses already. You beat so, me. Yeah. <laughs> you got it done first. So, um, but Ole Miss did win this game 55 to 49, and it was a doozy. This, if you are not familiar, is the battle for the Magnolia Trophy, which is one of the prettiest and sweetest smelling rivalry trophies in all of college football, but it was just an absolute barn burner of an offensive showdown. Ole Miss had 706 yards of total offense, 389 passing, 317 on the ground. That is the first time in a quarter century that the Rebels have had over 300 yards passing and rushing in the same game. Absolutely an incredible performance. Uh, Jackson Dart, the quarterback, went 26 of 39 for 389 yards passing and four touchdowns. Uh, Ole Miss's running back, uh, Quinshawn Judkins, ran for 177 yards and a touchdown. Uh, and that's that was on, and that was on 33 carries. He was an absolute workhorse, but he wasn't the only one. They had another, uh, they had another running back, uh, Ulysses Bentley the fourth, who had nine carries for 90 yards rushing and a touchdown. Just an absolute manhandling on that side of the ball. But LSU also was pretty good on offense as well. 
Jaden Daniels, who for a while was looking like he could be a legitimate Heisman Trophy candidate. I don't think that that is really a possibility anymore. He was 27 for 36 for 414 yards passing and four touchdowns. They had two running backs um, go for, I mean, pretty much 100 yards. You had Logan Diggs, who went for 101 yards and two carries. And then you had Jaden Daniels, the quarterback, run for 99 yards and a touchdown. So combined, you put those two together, they averaged two, uh, they averaged 100 yards each. Um, a really just a, a really incredible offensive performance from both teams. Where it starts to get chaotic, Corey, though, is that LSU took the lead on a fairly controversial play. They actually got a free play because Ole Miss had lined up in the neutral zone or jumped off sides. And so they threw it to the end zone. It was kind of a jump ball. The LSU wide receiver comes down with it, gets a foot down. They signal a touchdown. However, upon further review, it looks like he really didn't have full control of it when his foot hit down. And by the time he gained total control, he was out of bounds. However, despite RG3's protestations from the broadcast booth, they did in fact let the call stand. That put up LSU 49 to 40, and that was with eight and a half minutes left. So it looked like they were in really good shape to kind of win. They were had the thinnest of two, two score advantages you could possibly get, but Ole Miss just kept coming. LSU was up 49 to 47 with 41 seconds left. Ole Miss wide receiver Trey Harris caught a quick screen pass in the flat. Again, only 41 seconds. He juked a couple guys out of their shoes. But Corey, this might have been one of those things because there's only 41 seconds where LSU was letting him get in. It was only like a a uh, like a less than a 20 yard score. So it might have been them letting him score to get the ball back. And it almost worked. LSU let him go, lets him go in. Um, they are then down 55 to 49 because Ole Miss went for two and got it. But LSU gets the ball back and has a 34 yard completion to get the ball. No, LSU gets the ball and has a huge completion to get the ball down to the 34 yard line. And it looks like they've got a shot, but it just kind of all implodes on them. Uh, Daniels throws a pass that could have been intercepted with 19 seconds left, but it was dropped on the next play. Ole Miss, though, is called for a horse collar tackle on Jaden Daniels. So that sets up LSU at the 16. But on the very next play, they get called for a false start. So it backs him up. It's 12 seconds left. They're on the 21. But then they have an incomplete uh, an incomplete pass. They don't get anything. There's five seconds left. LSU gets another false start. So they get pushed back to the 26th. And then on the final play, Daniels kind of spins and eludes pressure and then throws the ball in the end zone. But it bounces off the hands of the receiver and it falls incomplete. Everybody uh, at, in the stadium goes crazy. Ole Miss fans storm the field. They end up getting fined for that on Sunday, but I think they're probably happy to pay for it. But a really thrilling game, a really exciting game. And what what I thought might adds a little bit extra chaos to this one, Corey, is the fact that this was a 6 p.m. Eastern time kick, which means like it kind of bridged the gap in between the late afternoon and the evening windows. So it made it fun because like you could bounce from the end of the 3.30 game into the end of this one, into games that had already started in that 7, 7.30, 8 o'clock window. So I like that. We need more staggered starts there. But Completely. overall, really exciting game, really chaotic, really fun. Not many more of those like that this weekend, but uh, really exciting. I was on the edge of my seat throughout the whole thing. Completely agree about the staggered starts. Love that. I want there to be games that kick off at 2 p.m., at 6 p.m. I, I just love being able to have a game maybe come down to the wire at all times. Also, remember when the SEC sort of hung their hat on 
defensive battles. There'd be a final score like no, Alabama no, no. LSU nine to six. This was so foreign to that. It was wild. All right. So chaos rating. Let's see. You know, I think if we were doing entertainment rating, like I would put this very high because it was a very fun game. Chaotic. Yeah, it was fine. I, you know, maybe if I even throw in a few points for the staggered start, but I'd go. 63. Does that feel right for you, Corey? That sounds a little low, but, you know, do what you got to do. A little low? 68? Yeah, I'd take a 68. Okay. All right. 68. <laughs> uh, it's a collaboration here at the Fourth Quarter Chaos Podcast. Um, now, if I'm being completely fair, this next game that you're going to talk about, Corey, this might have been my favorite game of the day. Uh, so tell me about Baylor and UCF. So this game was absolutely wild. So UCF still going for their first ever Big 12 win. Now that they're in the conference. They lost to K-State last week. They had a 35-7 to lead late in the third quarter. That is 35-7. to Everyone online was talking about Dave Aranda is done at Baylor. This season is a complete disaster. Just two years removed from winning a Big 12 championship. Best Baylor season ever. They are going, they've got to fire him. This is atrocious. It's it's a train wreck. And then Blake Shapin, the Baylor quarterback who hadn't played since the opener due to, due to an MCL injury, all of a sudden transforms into the big 12 Baylor offense that we became accustomed to where they're just throwing it all over the field, 20 yards here, 25 yards, 16 yards receivers were wide open. They had two touchdowns on both touchdowns. They went for the two point conversion, made it both times. Then later in the game with just over six minutes left, UCF has the ball. They're up nine. They're in Baylor territory. And even the announcers were saying, yeah, this isn't looking good for Baylor because UCF can drain a ton of clock here. They're now in Baylor range. They could go up even more. And then what happens? UCF fumbles a snap. It was picked up by Caden Jenkins from the Baylor defense. He runs it all the way back. It's a scoop and score, a touchdown for Baylor. And now all of a sudden, Baylor is in range. Absolutely incredible. UCF's offense was bad. The defense was missing tackles. Then Baylor takes a lead in the final moments. A minute 21 left. They get into field goal range. They kick a 25-yard field goal. Baylor now up 36-35 to after those touchdowns, two-point conversions, scoop and score, and a field goal. But UCF still has a chance. Under a minute left, UCF quarterback Timmy McLean had one of the most insane scrambles I have seen in my entire life. He holds onto it for 13 seconds before throwing, but not in the pocket. He runs to his left. He runs backwards. He runs to his right. He runs into the end zone where he nearly got tackled for a safety. He was so incredibly close to going down. Gets it out of the end zone, finds time, throws it. By the way, this was all on a fourth down play. This was fourth and five. Mm-hmm. He's scrambling all around, throws it, and they convert the fourth down play. Absolutely wild. If you haven't seen this scramble, you got to look it up. UCF, Timmy McLean, one of the most incredible scrambles I've ever seen in my life. It was like straight out of like playing Michael Vick in Madden 04. It was wild. <laughs> they convert. They move the ball down the field. They get it to Baylor's 42-yard line with 10 seconds left. And remember, they're only down one, so they only need a field goal. So all they really need to do is maybe get it, I don't know, 10 yards down the field. The clock does stop if they get a first down. 
But at the 42-yard line, they take a chance. Timmy McLean throws it way down the field, heaves it toward the end zone, looking for a touchdown. It's incomplete, and it takes eight seconds. So now you no longer have a chance to just move the sticks 10 yards, get into field goal range, and go from there. Two seconds left. They bring on the field goal unit. It's a 59-yard field goal attempt. They miss it, and UCF loses. But the kicker's name was Boomer. It's Colton Boomer. So, like, maybe he had a shot at it. I don't know. I think it kind of works the other way around because, uh, not to go back to Pitt, the best success Pitt has had lately, the quarterback was named Pickett, and the kicker was named Blewett. That's a good point. That that was so great. I, that was iconic. I, yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I I think it might have worked to, against them. Absolute collapse by UCF. Baylor, the largest comeback in program history. Absolutely wild what we saw in that game. And I have to say, the on that McLean scramble, the guy calling the game is named Eric Collins. He is one of the best. He does like basically every game that's on FS one on a Saturday because they keep him remote and they, him and whoever, I forget who his color uh, commentator is. They don't travel to the game. So he will do multiple games in a day. He'll do the Friday night game. He'll do two on Saturday, whatever. But I, it's, I guess now it's been 18 years, but I worked with him in when he was starting or when he was early in his career. He's also the play-by-play guy on TV for the uh, NBA's Charlotte Hornets and just a great guy, but his enthusiasm on that, he is what you want in a play-by-play guy, which you know very well. Like You want to be in the moment. You want to get excited, but you also want to be able to describe what's happening, and he balanced both the emotion and the responsibilities of of a play-by-play announcer perfectly. So if you haven't seen that, look up the video and check out Eric Collins's uh, call on that because he's one of the absolute best. And I hope they pay him well to do like three games in a weekend, even if he doesn't have to travel for him because uh, uh, he's one of the best and he deserves it. Normally I would say that's, that's pretty sweet that he gets to be remote. That said, not being able to be there at some of these atmospheres, yeah. that's kind of tough in terms of a chaos rating. This one had a lot. Largest comeback in Baylor history, UCF choke job, a scoop and score, that incredible scramble from Timmy McLean, the the questionable decision in the final 10 seconds. I'm going to go high. Tell me if this is crazy. I'm thinking like an 84 here. No, I think that's very fair. I think that's very fair. 84. So that would put it, that was tie, that would tie it with the Duke Clemson game from week one. And behind Colorado TCU for for obvious reasons, but that it would be tied for the second highest game, no third highest because I put Notre Dame Ohio State uh, yeah. higher, which I might have been a little biased on that one. Uh, but, I think that's deservedly so. Okay, so it's it's tied for third on the year. I think that's very fair. I think that's very. Yeah. Fair. It was wild. I like it. This game, not exactly super chaotic, but very compelling. It is the Deep South's oldest rivalry. It was number one Georgia against Auburn. And this one came down to the wire. Georgia ended up winning 27 to 20. Auburn dominated the first quarter. They went up 10 nothing. Georgia dominated the second quarter. It was 10. They they outscored uh, Auburn 10 nothing there. So they went into halftime, tied at 10-10. They split the third quarter. 7-7, and then Georgia ended up winning 
uh, the fourth quarter, 10 to three. And I'm going to get into a little bit more of the details on this because the numbers here are insane. But Corey, I want to bring this into kind of a, a little bit of a question that I have for you. Are there any good teams in college football this season? We've talked about this a little bit, but like the more we see of the teams that we think are going to be great, the less we actually see greatness. Uh, we saw even like Penn State this week was only up 10-10. Uh, Penn State was tied 10-10 with Northwestern going in halftime. They ended up blowing them out in the second half, but not great. We've seen Texas struggle. They kind of struggled with Kansas this weekend again before blowing them out. And obviously they ended up doing the things that they're supposed to do and winning those games at the end. Same thing with Georgia here. Same thing with Georgia and South Carolina, Ohio State. My Buckeyes have done it this year as well, kind of playing with their food because they can't get things figured out. Is this a sign that there are no dominant teams? And obviously these teams will get better as the season goes on. But are we in a year where because there's no great teams, we could see more chaos down the road? Because maybe kind of like 2007 a hugely chaotic year in college football history like there might just not be somebody who is predestined to make it to the playoff and it could just be a year where you give the shrug emoji because anything could happen there are absolutely no dominant teams this year and i love it now your original question was are there no good teams i think there are a lot of good teams but yeah. no dominant teams and that's what's amazing if you're looking at the rankings right now I mean, how many teams do you think could ha has a realistic shot at winning a national championship? Georgia, Michigan, Texas, Ohio State, Florida State, Penn State, Washington, Oregon, USC. At least those nine, maybe Notre Dame 10, maybe even Alabama, maybe Oklahoma. There are a lot of teams that have a realistic shot at getting into the playoff and actually winning a national championship. And I think all of those 10 to 12 teams have a realistic chance of losing to a mediocre team in their conference. So that's what's incredible is while Georgia and Michigan and Texas, they all do look good, and I could imagine them winning the national championship, I could also imagine Texas losing like at Iowa State this or something week? completely random. Well, certainly this I weekend. Yeah, yeah, I could see them losing this yeah. weekend. Yeah, certainly in a big rivalry game, but I'm saying any of these teams could drop a game that's that no one's – expecting them to i would not at all be surprised if something weird happens where i don't know a good example but say ohio state slips up at rutgers or we've got, just some, we've something got like purdue that. in a couple of weeks we've seen that before right uh, ohio so state's I, lost to purdue so who i knows? think there can absolutely be chaos because i don't think any of these teams are infallible where they're definitely going to beat and blow out these lesser teams i think some lesser teams are going to give them a challenge and then of course they'll be playing each other texas oklahoma michigan ohio state penn state and all that i'm so excited for the the remainder of this season because there's not it's not a season where it's Alabama or it's Georgia or even Clemson where you just feel like you kind of know that it's one, maybe two teams that are going to dominate, go undefeated. I wouldn't be shocked if any of those teams go undefeated and wins a natty. I wouldn't be shocked if all of them lose a game. That's what's amazing. Yeah. Uh, let's get back to this Georgia Auburn game and looking at the stats for Auburn are kind of crazy. They only had 307 total yards of offense. They had 88 passing yards. The fact that in the year of our Lord 2023, a team in a Power 5 conference that could have beaten the two-time defending national champion had 88 yards of passing 
is absolutely nuts to me. Peyton Thorne transfer from Michigan State was 10 of 19 for 82 yards and one interception. They didn't even have anybody rush for over 100 yards. Peyton Thorne was their leading rusher with 92 yards. They had 219 total yards, averaged 5.1 yards per carry. But when you think of Georgia, you think of a team that likes to pound the ball. They also only had 107 yards of total rush, uh, uh, total on the ground. They had 313 through the air from Carson Beck, who is 23 of 33 with one touchdown and one interception. And a lot of that came late, which we're going to talk about here in a second. But like this was not an offensive masterpiece like we saw with LSU and Ole Miss. This is a little bit more like that SEC of, of the days of yore that you mentioned earlier, Corey. But really, Auburn seemed to have this game in hand until... Carson Beck and the Georgia offense realized that they had the most dominant pass catching tight end in college football with Brock Bowers. And they just kept feeding him over and over and over again. If you look just in the second half, which really is, is all of it because they didn't really target uh, Brock Bowers in the first half, but Brock Bowers had a catch for 29 yards, had a catch for 37 yards, had a catch for 28 yards, had a catch for 16 yards, and then had what ultimately ended up being the game-winning score of 40 yards with 252 left in the fourth quarter. Um, it was absolutely crazy that they went that whole game. Auburn was able to shut Brock Bowers down in the first half and then for most of the, the third quarter. And then they were just like, oh yeah, we have a cheat code. Like the big strong guy who catches everything and can outrun <laughs> people. We should get him the ball. So that's terrifying because like it's one of those things where you can remember like, oh yeah, I have a superpower. I just need to put my cape on and we can go to him. But nothing else that, that Georgia tried all game, Corey, ended up working. And and if you can find as a defense a way to shut him down, which is obviously next to impossible, but if you can figure out a way to do that, you might be able to keep Georgia in check because they don't seem to have the running game that they've had in years past. They don't seem to have the 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 passing game that they have in years past. Uh Lad McConkey, who's their like number one wide receiver, he only had four catches for 38 yards and he was the number two receiver behind Bowers yesterday. So not exactly a huge, incredible showing from Georgia. But here's the thing, and this is kind of the counter to our conversation about there being no dominant or great teams. I do trust teams like Georgia, like even Ohio State, even though I have my own issues with Ohio State's coaching staff and the way they do things, but also with like Michigan to get some things figured out and maybe just them. Like, I don't I, I don't have I don't have faith in Texas. I don't have faith in USC because I think their 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 defense is horrific. And we're going to talk about them here in a second. And that was put on full display on Saturday. But like. Ohio State, Georgia. Michigan to a lesser degree, Penn state, a lesser degree, Alabama, just because I, I think they're down this year. Like I think George is going to figure it out. That's why, like if you're looking for chaos, I would have hoped they'd drop one of these games to Auburn or South Carolina, but I think they're going to continue to get better as the season progresses. So by the time they end up playing a Tennessee or, um, or even getting to the sec championship game or the college football playoff, they might be in full Georgia death star mode. But right now, 
they're kind of like a middling TIE fighter that could end up getting blown up by by a laser beam from somebody else. Yeah, it's been wild to see Georgia, one of the most prolific running back colleges in college football history, really not be able to get it together. But as you said, then they remembered, oh, yeah, we have Brock Bowers. We can just get it to him. Kind of reminds me of that Will Ferrell movie, Kicking and Screaming, where Mike Ditka brings on two Italian kids to the team and the entire rest of the season. The only thing is pass the ball to the Italians. To me, that's the instruction for Carson Beck. Get the ball to Brock Bowers. Let him cook. Let him do Always. what he does. He's incredible. If we're in a pinch, if you're in trouble, get the ball to Brock Bowers. He'll take care of the rest. So because of that, I do think Georgia, even in these tough games, has they've got that escape route, that escape hatch. I do think they're going to get better. I agree. I think they're they're taking some time to gel. Not to mention their schedule lightens up over the next couple weeks. Kentucky's going to be difficult, but then Vanderbilt, Florida, not too tough. They will have some trouble in the back half. Missouri's looking pretty good. Ole Miss looks good. Tennessee is solid. But for the most part, I think Georgia in the SEC East should be able to get through the season relatively unscathed, make it to the SEC championship, and then go from there. All right, chaos rating here. I'm going to go... I think I'm going to go with a sensible 55. Like it was entertaining. The fact that Georgia screwed up the first two and a half quarters um, kind of goes there, but I think I'm going to go 55. That might be a little generous, but it was an entertaining game. And I was, I was all in whenever I think Georgia's going to lose. I'm all in. Um, so like, it was a little bit more exciting and chaotic early. And then down the stretch, it just was, it looked like they decided to take the, the, uh, the training wheels off and go for it. But 55, Georgia, Auburn. Let's move on to the game that I mentioned earlier, USC and Colorado. Uh, this was a weird one. This was just a weird game. I had it on like the multi-view, so I wasn't paying super close attention to it, especially because it got out of hand really quick. And then I yep. looked up towards the end of the game, and then I realized, oh, it is no longer out of hand. It was bizarre because I felt the exact same way. You look at it. And USC, monster favorites going into it. We all kind of expected that this will be somewhat similar to what happened to Colorado against Oregon, where, yeah, there was hype, and, yeah, people are rooting for Colorado, but ultimately they're playing a team that just has phenomenal talent, and they'll get crushed. And it looked like that. USC threw all over Colorado. Caleb Williams looked like not just a Heisman contender, but a repeat Heisman winner. He was spectacular. The Colorado defense had nothing to compete with him for so much of that game. And we knew Colorado maybe on the line was kind of weak, but you think with Deion Sanders that they would have the cornerbacks, the safeties, that secondary would be a little bit better even in that first year. And there were plays where wide receivers were just wide open. Uh, Caleb Williams put up a massive, massive stat line. His final stat numbers, 30 for 40, 403 yards, six touchdowns, one interception, absolutely unreal. USC, at one point, they led 34 to 7. That's when, yeah, you, you keep an eye on the score. I'm not watching that. They're blowing them out. Then they're up 41 to 14. Yeah, they're blowing them out. I'm not going to watch that. Then they're up 48 to 21. So even as Colorado finally gets the offense going, USC is still matching them. It was 48 to 21 late in the third quarter. This seemed like it wasn't even a contest. And then... Colorado starts coming back. Shador Sanders had a great game, finished 30 for 45, 371 yards, four touchdowns, one interception. 
basically going back and forth with uh, Caleb Williams once we got late into this game. Omarion Miller, another great game for him. 196 yards receiving and a touchdown. He had one reception that was 65 yards. It was incredible. Colorado, after being down 48-21 to late in the third quarter, cut it to a one-score game in the final minutes of this one. They get a touchdown with a minute and 43 minutes left. At that point, their backs were up against the wall. They were still down 48-41. They needed an onside kick. They needed to recover it. They went for it, weren't able to recover it, and then USC able to just take the knee and end the game. So this went from, for three quarters, looked like it wasn't even a contest. Then the fourth quarter was, hold on, this could get incredibly interesting. (laughs) And then the last minute and 48 kind of petered out a little bit. But still, that was just a really interesting game. And I was talking about, old school SEC games where it was nine to six and it was all defense. This was the polar opposite of that. Yes. The two offenses looked amazing, but boy, did the two defenses look rough. Yeah, that was what I expect from the USC defense. They're terrible. Their defensive coordinator, uh, Alex Grinch was at Ohio state. He was terrible at Ohio state. Uh, that this is the problem. Like this is the problem with, with USC as a national title contender they give up way too many points. Like I just don't trust them to stop anybody. And we know Colorado has a great offense, a lot of skilled players, but you can't be up that much and let a team come back. Like even if you assume that Colorado is going to score, once you get up by 34 to seven or 31 to seven, whatever it was, you can't, you can't let them make it a game. Like you just can't. So USC, I I know people really like the idea of USC being a a national title contender. I just don't see that happening with Alex Grinch as the defensive coordinator, Um, which, I mean, if they have another year, if they finish like they did last year, like he's got to be on his way out. I can't imagine. But I mean, uh, Lincoln Riley brought him from Oklahoma. So who knows? What what do I know? Maybe he's very comfortable with having a terrible defense. But (laughs) I, I, I would very much like to see Ohio State go up against that defense next season when USC is in the Big Ten. Uh, all right, Corey, what is your chaos rating for this one? Yeah, that that is a one-sided team if I've ever seen it. Amazing offense, mm-hmm. terrible defense. Uh, chaos rating. You know, with Colorado, they've got celebrities there. It was in Boulder. They've got people rooting for them. It was an offensive masterclass from Caleb Williams and Shador Sanders. Ultimately, though, it was never really that close. This might be a little bit generous because of the circus around it and and – all the the high-flying action, the deep passes. I'll go a 61, even though it wasn't particularly close. I'll still give it a 61. All right, that seems fair. That seems very fair. This next one, I, we're, we're running longer than normal. We've talked a lot, even though these games haven't been especially chaotic. But I will just throw a, a little bit of more interest entertainment to the BYU-Cincinnati game. BYU beat the Bearcats 35-27. to This was... A Big 12 game, if you forgot that either BYU or (laughs) UC are now in the Big 12. Uh, They both are. Noted conference rivals, Cincinnati and BYU. (laughs) Cincinnati and and BYU, both in the Big 12 this year. Cincinnati, I I think the big difference here is that BYU looked like a Big 12 team in terms of having the hog mollies up front. And BYU is one of those teams where like, yes, it is just now joining the Big 12, but it has been you know, because it's been an independent and it's kind of bounced between conferences, like they just seemed physically ready for this level. I'm not sure that Cincinnati is there yet. Um, 
they neither team was super impressive. BYU only had 295 yards of total offense. Uh, UC was much, much better balanced, had um, 256 yards passing, 242 yards on the ground, very well balanced, but they had two turnovers. And that was really, uh, that was really the, the, the difference there that they were not able to uh, control the ball and they gave up plays. In fact, the very first score of the game was on a pick six thrown by uh, Cincinnati quarterback Emory Jones that went for a touchdown from Jacob Robinson for BYU. And then there really BYU just kind of scored touchdowns and Cincinnati had to settle for field goals. And that was really the difference. So um, not the most chaotic game. It was probably closer in score than it actually was on the field. Cincinnati got a late touchdown with just 26 seconds left, but it was a game that, you know, went back and forth. The scoring was fairly even. It was just Cincinnati had to settle for some field goals. They turned it over twice and and that was really the difference. So chaos rating for this one, not super high, but fairly entertaining and, and fairly fun. So I, I'll go for a, uh, for a 31 on this one. Okay, yeah, that that seems fair you know, on the lower end, but as you said, yeah. not the most chaotic week. No, uh, all right. I don't know how you feel if uh, if this one was super chaotic or not. Um, it was it was interesting, and it, again, I had it on a second screen, but uh, an interesting game, especially because I had some rooting interest because it features the best team that Ohio State has beaten so far this year. Yeah, you gotta love college football where you root for teams that you've beaten or you might beat due to strength. <laughs> schedule it's yeah no other sports like it it's amazing so uh notre dame versus duke this was where college game day was for the first time ever for football okay hold on let's hold on let's stop there i know you were you were at soccer games you were calling games did you see the game day pick them segment for this game at all the picks with ken jong yeah yeah okay so first off i'm going to out myself here i think that the mass singer is one of my, one of the best TV shows on television. It is the most that if you want wow. chaos, watch the mass singer. <laughs> it is absolutely insane. I, I love that show. Uh, I have friends that like we text about it, like our, our guests and everything. So like, I love Ken Jong. Uh, he's great. In movie. I just watched season two of the after party on Apple TV plus he Same. was great in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, but like, I think people forget that he can be, dirty like he came from that like we know him first from the hangover movies i was gonna say like he he had some lines in there that i had to feel like there were some espn like sensors and standards and practices people like having their finger over the button because he was even shocking pat mcafee and then he was like humping the ground at the end to kind of counteract lee corso's irish uh jig because he picked uh ken jong went to went to duke corso picked the irish so he was like doing the irish jig with the with leprechaun and then ken jong was like doing like some stripper dances it was nuts and i feel like that's some extra chaos points just because of what happened on game day seven hours before the actual kick that's a very good point yeah it's funny because people do know him for community and they know him from the mass singer and they know him, you know from yeah. some more pg things but he sort of burst onto the scene leaping out of a trunk in the hangover fully nude so there yeah. is that um and and he went viral last time he was on college game day he was picking for michigan state where 
I think he might be from Michigan. I forget what the connection was. It was always kind of weird, but he's a doctor. So he probably went to multiple schools. So it's yeah. And so I think maybe one of the schools was Michigan state. And so he was picking for them and he made a joke about his hoe. And then his wife's last name is hoe. And that was the joke. And he sort of went viral for it. He did it again. He did it again uh, on Saturday. Yeah. 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 So so I think they kind of know what they're getting with him, that he can maybe get close to the edge, but that dance was a little, I'm going to tack on an extra couple points at the end, but let's talk about the game. So after, uh, Ken Jong dry humps the air. Uh, Notre Dame in Wallace Wade Stadium takes a 10-0 lead into halftime. Duke was supposed to get on the board right before the half. Riley Leonard ended up fumbling it in the red zone right at the end of the second quarter. Duke was at line in line for at least a field goal, maybe a touchdown, but he fumbled it. So Notre Dame takes a 10-0 lead into halftime. Riley Leonard, despite that fumble, was excellent in a high-pressure game. He, in big moments, he stepped up. Now, his stat line isn't great. He did have the fumble. His Some of the passes weren't accurate. But when you're looking for that quarterback, that intangible of when it's third and long, who's going to get the first down no matter what, Riley Leonard stepped up. He threw for 134 yards. He had one touchdown, one interception. But on the ground, 88 yards rushing, the averaging 4.9 yards. And again, some of them came in huge plays. I was actually very impressed by Riley Leonard in this game against a phenomenal Notre Dame defense. And I think that's what this game showed me is that both of these teams had great defenses. It was very similar in some ways to last week's Notre Dame, Ohio state game. That was a low scoring game, but not because the offenses were bad or was ugly. That's because both defenses stepped up and came to play. And this proves to me, Notre Dame's defense is legit back a week ago. Your Ohio state's defense is legit and Duke's defense is legit. So just a a really tough game on both ends. Uh, So then from the 33-yard line, uh, Duke has the ball. They're up 14 to 13. They're on Notre Dame's 33. This is late in the game, last few minutes. They choose not to try to kick a field goal, but instead punt it away. The thinking being that instead of taking – they had a one-point lead. So instead of taking a four-point lead and making Duke score a touchdown, you can punt it pin Notre Dame within their territory. The Duke defense has been amazing all night. Let's just trust the defense and not let Notre Dame drive it down the field. That was the thinking. What We've talked about this before. We've talked about like st- strategic decisions. What did you think of that? Hindsight being 20-20 and all, but... So my, my initial thinking was, why aren't you kicking it? You're at the 33-yard line. And then I remembered and realized, wait, Duke's defense has been excellent. Like if, if there are any teams that are going to do this, Duke is one of the few that I think it's not a terrible decision. Some others being Ohio's. If this were USC doing this, I would say you're absolutely nuts. But because Duke's defense has been great this year and they were great throughout the game, I didn't think it was a bad decision. I'm not sure I would have done it. I think I would have gone for the points. But I don't think it was terrible because the Blue Devils D has been excellent so they punt and to be fair it worked out where the punter did his job they downed it at the five yard line it wasn't a touchback so notre dame had to drive it yeah and i will say the uh, duke's kicker todd polino is only five of nine in field goals so asking him to kick a 50 yarder like i guess that makes sense normally i am not for the scared punt but in that situation i I do think you're right it's it's one you have to kind of swallow and grit your teeth to make the call but like especially when you see the punt downed as far down as it did or at the five yard line, basically that you know, makes a little bit more sense. 
Yeah, definitely the the hindsight of having it down at the five as opposed to a touchback that brings it to the 25 certainly helped Mike Elko uh, justify it. So two and a half minutes left on the clock. Notre Dame gets it. They've got to drive down the field. They're only down one, so they don't need a touchdown. They only need a field goal. Sam Hartman starts leading Notre Dame down the field. They get toward midfield. At one point, it is a fourth and 16. Fourth and 16. This is the game right here. Duke needs one stop, and that is it. They beat Notre Dame. And the Duke secondary had the Notre Dame receivers covered, but they didn't keep a spy on Sam Hartman. They didn't keep anyone even close. So Sam Hartman has all the time in the world waiting to throw. No one's open. Again, credit the Duke secondary. But not a single linebacker, anyone, was watching Sam Hartman. And so on fourth and 16, he runs from the line of scrimmage all the way past the first down marker. I think it was a 17-yard rush by the end of it. Mm -hmm. Just unreal that Duke allowed that. They needed one stop, and Sam Hartman just had a free run, no one even in proximity, and he scrambles to move the chains. Then from the 30-yard line, now we're getting to the point where you're starting to wonder, well, can Notre Dame maybe miss here? Does Duke let them score? You and I have talked about that on this podcast. But still, they were pretty far back, 30-yard line. That's missable for a Notre Dame kicker. Well, it doesn't matter. Aldrick Estime runs it up the middle, barely gets touched. He was unbelievable. This was not the most creative play call. This wasn't to the outside. It was just up the middle. The blockers did their job, and he is sensational. Like I said, didn't get touched, ran at 30 yards into the end zone. Notre Dame gets a touchdown. Uh, Audrey Estime had a stellar game, 81 yards, two touchdowns. He really is one of the best running backs in the country. Duke did get the ball back, though. They were down 21 to 14, chance to drive it down the field with Riley Leonard. And on that drive with under a minute left, Riley Leonard gets strip sacked. And to add, in this case, injury to insult. He gets injured on the play and is down for a significant period of time. It's unclear if this is going to be a long injury, but man, yeah. just a brutal ending for Duke. Right right before we started recording, they actually saw the report that they are considering it just a high ankle sprain. So, of course, those can still keep you out for a while, but it was not some sort of ligament or bone damage, but it looked really, really bad when it happened. But it does seem like his season is not over, that he will have an opportunity to come back, whether I don't know what their schedule looks like, but two weeks, three weeks, maybe he's got a, got a buy in there that can actually save him a game. But it does sound like Riley Leonard will be back, but it looked bad when it happened. So I was very happy to hear that it was not something much more devastating. Like I honestly thought it was in the moment. Yeah. Right, that's chaos rating. Yeah. So um, chaos rating. What do you got for this one, Corey? So it was a v- similar to Ohio state Notre Dame. It was a very good game for most of it. It wasn't particularly chaotic that Ohio state Duke, or excuse me, Ohio state Notre Dame game came right down to it. That definitely had the chaos at the end. This one it did have the big play from Estime. I would say chaos rating. I'm going to go a 67. That run from Estime, the fourth and 16 from Hartman. I'll say a 67 for this one. And it could have been a lot higher if Riley Leonard doesn't get strip sacked and injured, unfortunately, on that on that last play for Duke. Is that including Ken Jung bonus points? I forgot. I was going to do it. Okay. Instead of 67, Ken Jong doing a weird lap dance on college game day. I, let's I mean, go do 69. It. Yes, you have to. That's very nice. I was If you didn't do that, I was going to recommend it. So <laughs> I think that is very good. Very good for uh, Dr. Ken Jong. 
All right, I'm going to go with, I'm, I keep coming back to this team because even though it's not exactly chaos in the way that we normally talk about, watching this team be absolutely horrific on offense is funny to me. And that is the Iowa Hawkeyes. They did beat Michigan State 26 to 16. So all credit where credit is due. And they did it with a backup quarterback because the Michigan transfer, Cade McNamara, who is the starting quarterback, he went down. I don't remember if it was the exactly in the first series of the game, but it was very early in the game. But he was three for five for 46 yards passing. But then he got hurt. His backup, who is named Deacon Hill, he's a sophomore. He came in. He was 11 for 27 for 115 yards, a touchdown and an interception. Michigan State obviously also going through their own issues that have nothing to do with what is happening on the field. They fired their co- officially fired their coach Mel Tucker this past week. Um, but Iowa had 161 yards passing, 61 yards rushing. But you look at it, you say 26 points. That's awesome. They got over their scoring uh, their scoring goal. In fairness, defensive scores and and all of that stuff does impact Brian Ferentz's status. So this counts, but. They're essentially game-winning touchdown because it was tied 16-16 to from Cooper DeGene was a 70-yard punt return for a touchdown. So even though they scored 26 points, they didn't actually score 26 points. So it's just a mess. Like, I, I don't even know what we're doing with Iowa anymore. The fact that Michigan State was able to keep this game close. I mean, like I said, it was 16-16 to with five minutes and 19 seconds left uh, when <laughs> when Iowa hit its third field goal of the game. Uh, they actually ended up tacking on another one to go up 26 to 16. But they had four field goals in the game. They had two touchdowns. One of them was on a punt return. Uh, it was just, you know, it's just bad, Corey. It's just bad football. And yet they legitimately could win the, the Big Ten West. And, this and is play. what is insane. Yeah, they're going to win. They They could. And they're going to play Ohio State, Michigan, or Penn State, or Maryland, for that matter. And all four of those teams would absolutely destroy them. This is going to be yet another year where the Big Ten Championship is not remotely competitive. I would be shocked if it is. The Big Ten West is so incredibly bad this year. And this is the hell that is being an Iowa fan at the moment, is you've got Brian Ferentz as the offensive coordinator. And on one hand, you're begging for your team to not score points, even the defense, because as you said, it counts all the same. You you want your team to not score because you want his contract to be voided. But at the same time, you're rooting for your team to win. And then you think, well, this whole thing's insane. The fact that the head coach's son is the offensive coordinator is ridiculous. And they've got to add this contract stipulation. Should we just move on? We're not even close to competing yes, with the Michigans should. or the Ohio state. Should we just move on from Kirk Ferentz's head coach? And you could definitely make that case, but they're four and one. They have a good shot to win the big 10 West and make it to the champ, the, the conference championship game. So they're just good enough where they can't really justify firing the head coach and his son. But, they're certainly not going to win anything of consequence with Brian Ferentz. And at this point, probably Kirk Ferentz as part of the program. So they are just in purgatory. I feel for those Hawkeye fans. I do not. Um, (laughs) But here's the thing next year. They're not doing divisions. There are no no divisions divisions in the big 10. No leaders or legends either. Oh, I look, (laughs) we've screwed up a lot of things in the big 10. I actually think that Jim Delaney was onto something there. The names were ridiculous, mm-hmm. but having the divisions broken up by like historic competence yeah. would have saved us from having Iowa 
win the league this year by not being able to score more than two touchdowns. Anyway, neither here nor there. Chaos rating, not super chaotic. Iowa itself, very chaotic. I'm going to stick with uh, with a with a solid 25 just out of uh, spite for Brian Ferentz. Brian Ferentz, uh, always in a search for 25. Yep. Uh, all right, Corey, this was a game from your conference, the ACC. It happened on Friday night. It was actually a really entertaining game. Like it was a low scoring game, but it was a, it was a fairly entertaining game between Louisville and NC state. It was. Yeah. For, for a while, this game was pretty evenly matched. NC state took a 10, nothing lead in the first half. Louisville comes back, ties it. It's locked at 10 apiece. And this is, this was an interesting game because Louisville is still undefeated. It's been pretty wild because they've got a new head coach. Scott Satterfield went to Cincinnati. Jeff Braun became the head coach at Louisville. He was born in Louisville, raised in Louisville, went to Louisville, and is now the head coach of his alma mater. So it's pretty cool on that end. They were undefeated already with two wins against ACC schools, granted not top ACC schools, and a win against a Big Ten school, granted not a top Big Ten school. I'm referring to Georgia Tech, Boston College, and Indiana. So it all counts. And so they were 4-0. They were going into this undefeated. So Louisville, at first, they were down 10-0, kind of surprising. They come back, they tie it. At one point, Louisville had first and goal, And Jack Plummer, the quarterback for the Cardinals, threw an interception in the end zone. That was brutal. Then later in the fourth quarter, five and a half minutes left, Louisville makes a 53-yard field goal to take the lead 13-10. to Then NC State has a chance to move the sticks. They don't do it. They punt it away to Louisville. Louisville punts it back, but a running into the kicker penalty negates it. So NC State was going to get the ball back with, I believe it was two and a half minutes, something similar to that, mm-hmm. and decent amount of time to work the ball down the field. But on fourth down, as Louisville is punting it back to the Wolfpack, they get a running into the kicker flag. Louisville gets a fresh set of downs. It's first down again. They kill way more clock. And while they do ultimately have to punt it, it actually, I think, was three minutes and change. They do punt it with a minute and 44 left to NC State. Still enough time to do something. But Brennan Armstrong, the transfer quarterback from Virginia to NC State, his first play on what could have been the game-winning drive, he throws an interception. Louisville hangs on to win 13 to 10, but ugh, it's it, not the most pretty game, but certainly interesting. It was a solid Friday night game for sure. As the ACC expert here, and you, of course, uh, co-host uh, Action Packed here on the Fans for Sports Network College Football Feed. What are what is Louisville's chances in the ACC? Like, are they legitimately going to compete with Florida State and Miami or are they? just snacking on the the also rans on their schedule and will be obliterated by the time they play the big dogs. I think I think it's the latter. I think they got the most favorable schedule in the history of the ACC. This is the first year that the ACC is going without divisions since they changed. And now it's a free for all with a couple locked in opponents. But the ACC teams they're playing this year, Georgia Tech, not very good. Boston College, bad. NC State, not very good. Pitt, bad. Duke is good. Virginia Tech, not very good. Virginia, bad. And Miami is good. So they've got two good ACC teams, and then everyone else is ranging from just okay to flat-out embarrassing. So Louisville can actually go win like six, go six and two in the ACC and, and have a really good year. But do I think they can keep it close against Notre Dame, against Miami, against Duke? 
I don't see it. They can prove it to me. They've got Notre Dame coming up next week. But mm-hmm. as of now, I just don't see it. I think they've got an incredibly easy schedule. I like what they're building. I think they'll be at the top of the mid-tier. So I think they'll finish behind. Even in the standings, they'll probably finish equal with Clemson because Clemson already has two losses. I don't think yeah. they're at the level of, obviously, Florida State or North Carolina or Duke. But I do think they can be behind that tier, behind Miami as well. I think they could be behind them with Syracuse toward the top of that middle tier of the ACC. All right, chaos rating, Louisville and NC State. What do you got? I'll go with a 42. Okay, fair enough. All right, I'm going to go with one. I'm going to run through this one fairly quickly. And this was a nice group of five matchup between Memphis and Boise State. And it's not as bad as the UCF implosion that you talked about earlier. But Boise State went up 17-0 with six minutes and 15 seconds, six minutes and 17 seconds left in the second quarter. They were cruising. They were ready to dominate. They were getting ready to blow out Memphis. And then everything changed. Memphis got its first touchdown with five minutes left in the first half. Then they got their second touchdown with 27 seconds left in the first half. So it was 14-17, 17. It was 17 to 14 heading into the break. Okay, we've got a nice close game. Memphis, though, has all the momentum. But the third quarter was mostly scoreless until Boise State lined up for what would have been a 37-yard field goal, which was from the 20-yard line. And then It was blocked. Memphis returned it for an 80-yard touchdown. And that put Memphis up 21 to 17. And they just kind of went from there. They scored again to go up 28 to 17. Boise State got their own touchdown, made it close again. But with two minutes and 16 seconds left, Memphis officially effectively got the game-winning touchdown on a one-yard touchdown run to go up 35-25. Boise State tacked on a late touchdown with 39 seconds left to make it 35-32. to But a really solid showing from both of these teams. I am starting to get a little bit concerned about whether Boise State is that dominant G5 school that we've seen so much uh, in recent years, in recent decades, to be honest with you. Um, They did have 519 yards of total offense. Their quarterbacks uh, actually had had played two quarterbacks. Taylor Green, who was their starter as a sophomore, he went for exactly 200 yards passing. And then Maddox Madsen, who came in in relief after Green was injured, went for 175 yards, had both of their touchdown passes. So they've got some guys who can sling it, but not exactly what you think of when you see Boise State. You assume that they're up 17 nothing in the second quarter. They're going to hold on. That wasn't the case here, but hopefully they can get things righted. I, I'm not going to go super high on the chaos rating here, but it was an entertaining game. I always like watching Boise State, whether they're on the, the Smurf turf or not. But um, I'll probably go with a uh, – I'll go with an equal score to BYU-Cincinnati and go 31 on that one. Okay, solid score. Yeah, it's interesting. Memphis, you talk about Boise State being a team that is one of these top teams in the group of five. Memphis sort of quietly having a very good season. They're four and Mm -hmm. one, and their one loss was at Missouri, a ranked undefeated team, and even that was only by a touchdown. And and I'm just going to throw this out here now. Missouri against LSU this week? Keep an eye on that one. Keep an eye on that one. Mm. All right, so let's wrap it up with our 10th and final game. I'm sorry to do this to you uh, because it is Pitt's rival, but tell me about West Virginia and TCU. So West Virginia, TCU, the Mountaineers 
got Garrett Green back. He was healthy after getting injured early in the backyard brawl against Pitt. This game was back and forth. TCU, obviously not as good as we thought they were going to be. We sort of saw that in week one and have seen that since. West Virginia, a little bit better than we thought they were going to be. Going into the season, everyone thought this would be one of the worst teams in the Big 12. Neil Brown, with maybe the hottest seat in the Power Five, he surely would get fired. But he beats Pitt in the backyard brawl. They beat Texas Tech, admittedly not a very good team. And then they've got this game against TCU. So this game was close. TCU, under five minutes to go, has a chance to tie it. They're down three. They kick the field goal. It gets blocked at the line of scrimmage. West Virginia blocks the field goal attempt. And that wasn't it. TCU gets the ball back in the very final moments. Yet again, within field goal range, they make the call, Sonny Dykes does, to go for the field goal. What happens? It gets blocked at the line of scrimmage by West Virginia again. It was a 55-yard attempt. So this one was a little bit more excusable because when you're going for distance, the trajectory has to be a little bit lower, so sometimes that can happen. But the fact that two times late in the fourth quarter, TCU kicks a field goal, has a field goal attempt to tie the game, and both times West Virginia blocks it. Griffin Kell, the kicker for TCU, you got to feel for him. Just a brutal day at the office, 0 for 3 in field goal attempts, two of those being blocked. And again, both coming late in the fourth quarter, absolutely brutal way to to lose, not even send it into overtime. So tough game for TCU. For West Virginia, all of a sudden, they're four and one. Neil Brown's seat, not so hot anymore. Part of it, I think, is because the Big 12 is having a down year. So the teams they've beaten haven't been incredibly impressive. The team's coming up. Houston doesn't look particularly good. Oklahoma State is having a down year. UCF is new. BYU is new. Outside of Texas and Oklahoma, there's not too much to be excited about in the Big 12 this year. West Virginia could quietly have a very good season when Neil Brown was just about on his way out the door. And WVU doesn't play Texas. So the only ranked team left on their schedule is Oklahoma coming up on Veterans Day in November. So they still have very winnable games against Houston, Oklahoma State, UCF, BYU. I might actually lean towards BYU in this one, but that's a toss up there. Cincinnati is on their schedule and Baylor's on their schedule. So like this is a legitimate chance for West Virginia to go nine and three, 10 and two at worst eight and four. When, like you said, it it looked like this could be uh, the last year of Neil Brown's tenure in Morgantown. All right. So what is your chaos rating for this one? Three, three missed field goals, two of them blocked in a three-point game. That is certainly chaotic. That's definitely chaotic. I am going to go with a... I'll go just below Notre Dame. So I'll go a 65. Oh, okay. So that's chaotic. You know what? You were right at the beginning because what that does is that that means that this week's chaos rating is 531 points. That will put it in second on the season behind week one, which had 555 points. And that's with me giving Iowa and Michigan state 25 (laughs) points. So, um, all right. I stand corrected. You were right at the beginning. I thought this would be a very low chaos rating, but of course I think I ended up with, uh, less chaotic games than you did. So I was a little bit, had a little bit of a blind spot on those. Yeah. But um, not bad, not bad overall. 531 puts it in second place. Week one, still the leader in the clubhouse, but lots of great stuff coming up in the middle and then back half of the season. 
All right, looking to week six, we have some very interesting games. Uh, if you, I, I'll go first because I I mentioned this earlier. The Red River Rivalry, Red River Shootout, Red River, whatever they want to call it, because they seem to change the name of whatever this is supposed to be called every couple of years. I think that one's going to be super chaotic. We've seen Texas be tight with some very bad teams early on. Oklahoma, still not the Oklahoma of the past. They are much more uh, suspect, especially on defense, than they have been uh, than you would or than you would expect. I guess they weren't really great on defense when Lincoln Riley was there, but especially with Brent Venables, you would think their defense would be better. They're not there yet, but number three Texas, number three Oklahoma, Red River rivalry on a neutral field it's at the, at the cotton bowl but uh i think that one could be really really chaotic and really really fun so if you had to pick a chaotic game to watch out for in week six Corey, what would it be this is interesting so i could pick maryland ohio state i don't know oh, that's if gonna you're... Be, i oh no i think that's gonna be chaotic yeah yeah definitely i think that is going to be a little bit closer than the spread now maryland also sort of benefiting from the fact that they haven't played good teams leading to their 5-0 and record. But I do think that the Terps are actually pretty good this year. There could be some chaos in that one. I like your pick of LSU-Missouri. That one could be chaotic. I think there's a chance that maybe Syracuse could give UNC some trouble. I think there's a chance Texas A&M can give Alabama some trouble. Kentucky could give Georgia some trouble. But I'm going to be cliche. I'm going to pick the Red River rivalry or whatever you want to call it. I think Oklahoma-Texas. I legitimately believe in both of these two teams. I think they're both having great years. I think the Big 12 overall is weak, but I think these two teams that won't be Big 12 for much longer, I think they're very good. I think this game is going to be wild, and I am so excited for it. So I think that game is going to be full of chaos. I, I will just say, while we've been recording, Bill Connolly from ESPN has put out his SP, SP Plus picks for this week. He has Alabama as a .5 winner over Texas A&M. He has Texas as a two-point winner over OU. He has Mizzou as a one-point winner over LSU. He's got Notre Dame as just a one-touchdown winner over Louisville. So lots of great games coming up this next weekend. I will be very excited. I will be glued to my TV on Saturday as we get ready to see what happens uh, in this next week of college football. If you are finding this somewhere and you are not subscribed to the podcast feed, please make sure that you are please make sure that you are subscribed to the fans first college football feed wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media at FansFirstSN. You can follow me on social media at Matt. You can follow Corey at Corey E. Cohen on Twitter. And then basically like just search for you in other places because there's different variations of your name everywhere, right? Yeah, Corey E. Cohen or Corey Cohen. I'm one of the two somewhere. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere. Find them uh, wherever you do your social mediaing these days. <laughs> all right, everybody, that is all that we have for week five of the Vans First College Football Sports Network's fourth quarter chaos podcast. We will be back to break it all down for week six next week. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you soon and enjoy the chaos.